All right, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, if you got your Bible, uh, we've been in a series now for many, many weeks uh, going through the book of Acts. We are about coming to halfway uh, in the book of Acts, and uh, Lord willing, the plan will be next weekend in the book of Acts, and then we'll take a break uh, and pick it back up in January. So hope that you are enjoying uh, this uh, study of the book of Acts, and so tonight uh, we're going to do a little bit of an overview. Uh, I've told you this from time to time that when when I teach scripture, there's sometimes I feel like we need to slow down and look at just a few verses. And then there's times I think we need to look at a a bigger section of scripture to kind of understand the forest that you don't get lost in the trees. And so tonight's one of those where I want to kind of show you a a big picture of what's going on here uh, in Acts chapter 13 and 14. But for our scripture reading, we're just going to read chapter 13 beginning at verse 4 down through verse 12. So if you're able uh, to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's word. Again, Luke is writing this uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was a proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that's what the meaning of his name was, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for some time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. Pray with me and for me as we ask God to teach us tonight. So Lord, we thank you for this time now to be in your word. It's inspired of you. It's a two-edged sword. Uh, It convicts. It also equips. And so we pray that uh, this evening, Lord, that you would uh, minister to us as we uh, listen as we look to your word, and Lord, we just ask that you would, would, would speak into our lives. As, as I have no doubt, there are many uh, watching or in this room who uh, may feel discouraged or burdened, and I pray that this evening uh, your spirit would encourage us and minister to us. And we pray all this for the glory of Jesus. That is the one that we exalt in this place this evening. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's one of the greatest stories of human survival of the last century. Uh, The story took place in 1972 about a rugby team uh, whose plane crashed in the Andes Mountains. 
that there were 45 people on that plane, 18 of them died on initial impact or within the first few days. Stuck there in that extreme cold of over 12,000 feet, the survivors took refuge in the broken remains of the aircraft. After, think about this, two weeks of waiting for rescue, an avalanche engulfed the shelter, killing eight more people and leaving the rest trapped in the dark for the next three days. After digging their way out, the survivors were able to find a small transistor radio only to learn that the search and rescue mission to find them had been called off. Surrounded by towering mountains too difficult to climb and too steep to descend, they were, fate family, left to die. Temperatures plummeting well below freezing at night. No one left had any survival training, no suitable clothing to wear, no fuel for a fire, no water, and practically no food. In fact, one of the kind of legendary stories that came out of this, and by legendary, I do mean that it's true, is that they actually had to eat the flesh of those that had died just to stay alive for 72 days. Realizing just how serious this was, eventually one man by the name of Nando and his friend that he convinced to go with him, Roberto, they decided that they were going to make the brutal trip down to find help. And so the next seven days, these men begin to go down the mountain with no ropes, no boots, no axe knife, no tent, no map, no compass. They descended over 4,600 feet and walked over 33 miles until they finally found a remote valley where they encountered a few men on horseback. Within Two days, or the next day, two helicopters arrived to rescue the survivors, and it's what became known as the miracle on the Andes. All of the survivors that were left were diagnosed with serious medical conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, and malnutrition. At a hospital in Chile, Nando caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. He was skin and bones. Could hardly even recognize the the former athletic young man that had boarded a plane some 72 days before. And all he could do was stare in that mirror and mumble over and over again, I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. Now, faith family, I doubt that any of us, I I don't know, maybe there are a few of you, I don't know the story if it's true, but, but most of us have never had to experience that kind of survival situation. But there is something that those individuals possessed, are you listening to me, that I promise you you're gonna need at some point in life. It's called endurance. 
you know what I'm talking about? Like that ability to keep putting one foot in front of the other no matter what, to do whatever it takes just to get to the next day, to tell yourself whatever it takes so that you don't give up, you don't quit, you don't throw in the towel. And some of you have been there. Maybe for you it was a medical situation where everything was about just get to the next day, just survive the night. Uh, Maybe for you it was financial and it was just a pay the, the minimum payment, pay the required bills and, and stay afloat financially. Maybe it was circumstantial. That is, you had to keep telling yourself there are going to be better days ahead. There are going to be better days down the road. Maybe for you it was uh, emotional. You were grieving and you were hurting and, and all you could do was muster up enough energy to get to the next day. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I guarantee you there are many of you in this room that would know what I'm talking about. You had to do whatever it took to endure. Listen to me, faith family. Sometimes the only thing that gets you through life is getting through life. Let me say that again. Sometimes the only thing that gets you through life is getting through life. It's the necessity of endurance. And while endurance is not just a requirement in life, Endurance is a requirement in the mission of Christ. Can I make a very obvious statement? Being a Christian is hard. That was a great place for an amen. I think I got two people on the front row that said, yes, sir, right, which I'll take. Being a Christian is hard. Being in ministry is difficult. Following Jesus is challenging, What part of take up your cross daily sounds enjoyable, sounds easy? It's not. The Christian life is hard. And I think sometimes we're afraid to admit that. It is not easy being on mission for Jesus. I mean, just think about the metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the Christian life. Here's some from 2 Timothy 2. Share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Here's some from 1 Timothy 6. Fight the good fight of faith. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. I do not box as one beating the air. 1 Corinthians 15. I worked harder than any of them, but it was not I. It was the grace of God in me. Now, which one of those examples sounds passive? Like it isn't hard and difficult and challenging, and and that there there are not moments in those metaphors when you want to quit the race. You want to stop working in the fields. You want to stop punching the bags. Whatever analogy you want to use It's hard, which is why one of the lessons we need to learn in the mission of Christ is the necessity of endurance. That is exactly what I want you to see 
in the life of Paul and Barnabas here in Acts 13 and 14. First, I want to show you what Paul and Barnabas endured. I want to show you what they went through. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are set apart for this mission. After a time of fasting and prayer, in verse 3, they are sent out. Paul and Barnabas leave Seleucia. They sail to the island of Cyprus. They work their way from east to west all the way to Paphos. And there in Paphos, they encounter the, the first type of opposition that they will experience on the mission. Pick it up, chapter 13 and verse 6. When they'd gone through the, old, the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear uh, the word of God. Uh, But uh, Elmas, a magician, uh, for that's what his name meant, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So this encounter is very, very similar to an encounter that Philip had uh, back in Acts chapter 8. If you remember Simon the magician. And what I told you there was that don't don't get caught off by that word magician. This is not somebody that does magic tricks or performs a show. Uh, What it means by magician is someone who was a worker of the occult. uh, Someone that was involved in demonic activities. So so what, what Luke is showing us here again is another example of how when the mission goes out, it always encounters a spiritual opposition. I don't know if you know this, faith family, but the powers and principalities that we cannot see don't want you on mission. They don't want faith family on mission. And there are going to be spiritual forces in the spiritual realm doing whatever it can to oppose the mission of Christ. Now watch what Paul has to say about this opposition. Verse 9. I love this. I want to put this on a coffee cup. Saul, who's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You really bad person. No, it's not what he says. You son of the devil. Kind of like what Jesus called the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? In other words, Paul here does not win an award for being politically correct. He doesn't come across nice. And I want you to lean in here. That's because he is dealing with false teachers or false teaching or the spirit, listen, the spirit of antichrist. And the Bible tells us to rebuke those spirits, not play patty cake with them, not be, you know, well, we just... We all have disagreements, you know, you know, you know, we, you know, you have your view, we'll have our view, and we'll just sing kumbaya and roast a marshmallow. No. Paul, when he realizes I am dealing with something that is demonic, I realize that I am dealing with someone that is a spirit of antichrist, he calls it what it is, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness. There is coming at me a force. Not of flesh and blood, but of powers and principalities. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. 
That is exactly what they deal with. In fact, notice who wins this encounter, verse 11. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for some time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed, which is what he was trying to prevent, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. There's so much I could say here, but I'm doing overview tonight. I'm doing big picture. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Notice it on the screen. A life on mission for Jesus will endure spiritual opposition. We must not forget we are at war. We are not at war with one another, as I said earlier. We are not at war with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. But Christian, let me remind you that when you said yes to Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, you became two things instantaneously, forgiven and hated. And you have had the bullseye on your back ever since. Because there are powers and principalities that do not want you to be on mission for Jesus Christ. But if you, if I, if we will stay true to the gospel, listen, you will prevail. Or as we just sang about, yet not I, but Christ in me. Even in the face of spiritual opposition, Paul and Barnabas endured. Here's the second thing. Notice not just that they had to endure spiritual opposition, they had to endure personal opposition. Here's what happens next. Keep your seatbelt on. Paul and Barnabas set sail to Pamphylia. They work their way up to the region of Poseidon. There, they're going to find a synagogue. Now, why a synagogue? Because a synagogue is a public place where you can start a public conversation. And they're going to hang out there at the synagogue. And they're going to uh, try to get the opportunity to share a word, to share a message. And in chapter 13, verse 15, they're invited to share that word. They're given the opportunity to share a message. And they jump at the opportunity to do so. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 16 through 41, this is where Paul gives a message showing how, this is frequently done in the book of Acts, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Let me give you just a glimpse. Verse 32, chapter 13 and verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He starts showing them how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and they love it. I mean, they erupt in applause. They can't get enough. Facebook and Twitter explodes. So much so, they invite them to come back and give another message on the next Sabbath. And on the next Sabbath, they did it again. Verse 48, chapter 13, verse 48, says this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Good things are happening, amen? The word of God is spreading. People are being converted. 
Uh, even the pro-counsel against spiritual opposition comes to faith. And if I've learned anything in my over 25 years of vocational ministry, it's this. Just when you think everything's going well, get ready for opposition. Because you think, man, things are really happening here. And look what happens in verse 50, the next verse, chapter 13, verse 50. But the Jews, so the word of the Lord is spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. In other words, Paul and Barnabas not only faced spiritual opposition, they also faced personal opposition. This is going to be a shocker. I know. I'm glad you're setting down. People will stir up division. When things are going well and the gospel is advancing and and people's lives are being impacted, make no mistake about it, opposition is coming. Notice this on the screen. A life on mission for Jesus will have to endure personal opposition. If you take the mission seriously, people will stir up things about you, and they might be from your own family. Paul's a Jew, and the people who are stirring all this up are Jews. See, even the very people who would have loved Paul have turned against Paul. And this may be some of the most difficult opposition to endure. This may be the kind of opposition that will make you want to quit the most. But Paul and Barnabas, in the face of personal opposition, continue to endure. Here's a third kind of opposition they faced, and that is theological opposition. Theological opposition. What's the source behind the personal attacks? What's the source behind all the division that's being stirred up? Answer, theological differences. There really is nothing new under the sun. You see, in each of these cities, Paul and Barnabas went into synagogues and preached the gospel to religious, that is, Jewish people. People that had the inability and difficulty to do two things. Number one, they could not connect the Old Testament storyline with Jesus. They were blinded by their Old Testament to where they couldn't see the fulfillment who is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And secondly, they couldn't accept that righteousness before God comes not by your works of the law, not by your good deeds, but by grace alone. So the the theological issues that that, that prevented them from getting over the hump is they, they couldn't see how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus, which is what Paul preaches, and they couldn't get over the fact that your obedience to the law doesn't gain you jack before a righteous standing before God. And this is the very thing that Paul and Barnabas preach. At the heart of their message is this, you don't save you, God saves you. Uh, Pick it up in chapter 13, verse 17. I got a good amen there. All right, you're getting warmed up. Only halfway through the sermon, as far as you know. Chapter 13, verse 17. Chapter 13, verse 17. Notice the emphasis here. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And while he had removed him, he he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Did you notice the emphasis I put on the word he, who was at work? God was. In other words, your whole redemption story, Israel, was a work of God, not you. He did it. He, he brought you up and, and he led you out and he, he fed you. And when you needed a king, he gave you a king and, and he gave you David. And through all of that, what did he give you? An offspring, the savior of the world. God was working on behalf of his people. Faith family, redemption is God's work, not ours. And religious people hate the idea that you can't contribute a thing. Notice this on the screen, faith family. The only contribution you bring to your salvation is your need for it. It's the only contribution you make. You say, but I believe, and who gave you the ability to believe? For faith is a gift. It's a gift from God. Next, not only are they preaching here that you don't save you, God saves you. They preach that you are righteous before God by faith and not by your works. Look at chapter 13, verse 38. Chapter 13, uh, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, what are they preaching? They're preaching grace. They're preaching faith alone. You couldn't be freed under the law of Moses. You only became more of a slave. You've heard me say this many times. The law was not given to keep. The law was given to prove you can't keep it. And your only way out will be your faith in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ of putting your life in his, not in your own strength. We've said this a thousand times around here. The gospel isn't due. It is what? Done. It is all about what Christ does for us. Here's the point, faith family. Notice it on the screen. A life on mission for Jesus will endure theological opposition. There will be people, particularly religious people, who will want to shut the gospel down. Because they cannot stand the idea that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot contribute anything to your salvation. Now, you might think this wouldn't be an issue in Minnesota. I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, Minnesota has the most per capita, keep that in mind, per capita, the most mega churches uh, in the U.S. 
Yeah, it's the most per capita mega churches in the U.S. A lot, there's a lot of Christianity in Minnesota, uh, a lot of Bible, but I believe not a lot of clear understanding on what the gospel is. It's why I still will have people that will come up to me and say, we visit a lot of churches, but we don't hear the gospel. To which I want to say, then what are you hearing? What else is there to say than the gospel? I don't, when there's no more need for the gospel, I'm done because I got nothing to say. I'm like a, a one bullet gun, gospel, 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 gospel. And if it ever becomes not about the gospel, I have nothing else to preach. It is about the gospel. There is far too much self-help being preached in churches than the gospel. So even among religious people, expect theological opposition, particularly when it comes to the gospel of grace. So they face uh, spiritual opposition, personal opposition, theological opposition. Number four, relational opposition. Relational opposition. Before we move to chapter 14... I want to show you another issue quickly that Paul and Barnabas have to endure. Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, now this is John Mark. We're going to see this again later in Acts chapter 15. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark quit. He left the race. He quit and went home. He didn't have a medical emergency. He didn't leave his Bible at home. He just quit. You say, how do you know he just quit? Because when we get to Acts chapter 15, this will be the very reason, and some of you know this, why Paul will refuse to take John Mark with him as they continue on the journey. And Paul and Barnabas will actually split over this issue Someone who had been in the trenches with them doing ministry decides to walk away. Notice this on the screen, faith family. A life on mission for Jesus will endure relational opposition. If I have learned anything in 25 plus years of ministry, and I don't say this for pity, it's the last thing in the world I would want, is that ministry can be a very lonely place. I have seen so many people come and go over 25 years. People will quit at the first sign of disagreement, even disagreement over important issues or difficulty. And maybe some of you have experienced this loneliness in the mission. Maybe you're married to an unbelieving spouse. Maybe you're one of the only believers at school or work. Uh, maybe you've had friends or family members walk away because you believe in Christ. Maybe you're single, and the reason why you can't get a date is because you refuse to compromise in order to get a date. And the loneliness of the mission can make you feel like you just want to quit. Remember the, the great words of theologian Dr. Seuss? Alone, whether you like it or not, alone is something you'll be quite a lot. I assure you, Paul knew what that was like. 
But even in the face of personal opposition, relational opposition, Paul and Barnabas kept enduring. One more. Are you enduring this sermon? I told you you were going to learn endurance tonight one way or the other. Physical opposition. Physical opposition. The journey continues now in chapter 14. They now travel from Iconium. They get run out of town there, and they end up in a place called Lystra. In Lystra, there's a man who is crippled from birth, and he's healed. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice what happens after this man is healed. Look at chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Let me put some context around this. They followed the Apostle Paul for a hundred miles. Do the research, find the maps, trace it out. They follow him for a hundred miles, stone him with rocks, drag him out of the city, and they leave him for dead. Now, be honest, this is now in chapter 14. He has already experienced theological persecution and and personal and relational and spiritual, and now he's being physically harmed because he is on mission. At this point, you would want to say, enough! I'm out! I'm done! Forget this! And yet, look at Paul's response in verse 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day went on with Barnabas to Derby. To Derby. I didn't figure that would do a thing for you. In other words, let me translate it. He traveled 60 miles after just getting stoned with rocks. I always make sure to emphasize it's the kind with rocks, not the other kind. Paul gets stoned with rocks. Like I'm afraid somebody's going to go on YouTube and just cut out a three-second section of me just saying, Paul got stoned, and it just goes everywhere, right? He's stoned with rocks, and he gets up and does what? Travels 60 miles. Like at this point, Paul looks like Rocky after the Russian dude. Like, cut me, Mick. Throw in the towel. Let's be done here. Instead, what he does is his best impersonation of the Black Knight in Mighty Python's Holy Grail. Stoning, it's just a flesh wound. Big deal. I've had worse. And then... Where of all places does he return? Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city they, and made many disciples, they returned to what? Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Translation, he went back to the places where they wanted him dead. These were the places he had to leave because they were trying to kill him. And yet he goes back there. Notice it on the screen. A life on mission for Jesus will endure physical opposition. Now, for most of us in America, this will not be a physical attack for your faith, though there are 
the majority of Christians in church history have had to deal with physical persecution. But notice, but know this, they will, they may not try to hurt you, but they will try to cancel you. They will throw verbal stones in your direction. Narrow-minded, intolerant, zealot. Here's what I mean, notice it on the screen. The world may not cut off your head, but it will most certainly try to silence your lips. Let me say that more specifically. The American culture may not, in some places in the world, they will cut off your head. Here in America, they may not cut off your head, but they will try to silence your lips. And that kind of opposition can make you want to crawl under the covers and quit. And even in the face of physical opposition, Paul and Barnabas endured. Are you as tired as I am? Do you see why I wanted you to see the whole picture? Look at what they went through for the sake of this mission. And Paul and Barnabas will journey from uh, Iconium to Poseidon, and eventually they'll make, back, make it back to Antioch. And this is what happens in Antioch, verse 27 of chapter 13, 14, 14, verse 27. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Yeah, I'd rest too. I'd take a little time to be strengthened by the church. And some of you just may say, Pastor, you don't, there's no, like, this is too much for me. I mean, even though I'm probably not going to face all that they faced, like you need to understand I'm the type of person that I can't even lose 10 pounds. I can't even save 10 bucks. I can't even pray 10 minutes, much less endure things like this for the mission of Jesus. Here's the good news. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Let me show you as I conclude this message, your 45-minute warning, not just what they endured, what they endured, but let me show you how they endured. And we'll close with this, how they endured. How did these energizer bunnies keep going and going and going and going, even in the face of all of the opposition they had to face? Here's the first reason. They had a biblical perspective of the Christian life. They had a biblical perspective of the Christian life. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 22 of chapter 14. Verse 22 of chapter 14. This is when they get back to Antioch. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Do you think they were good examples of that? You think they had cred? Absolutely. They were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I wonder if Paul was like, let me show you this scar right here. That was like the 23rd rock that hit my face. Let me show you this broken bone. That, that's when they drug me out of the city. And what were they strengthening these other believers with, that it's through many tribulations that you enter into the kingdom. In other words, they never expected the Christian life to be easy. And I think this is very, very, very important. They knew what they were signing up for. 
They knew that taking up a cross daily would not be comfortable. They knew that this was not, listen, advanced Christianity. This was Christianity 101. Blessed are the persecuted. Have you heard these words before? In this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus told his disciples. In this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, they knew that this is what was going to be a part of the mission. They weren't shocked by that. Here's the second thing, is they had a biblical perspective on the character of God. A biblical perspective on the character of God. I told you that there was a story I would come back to in chapter 14, I'm almost finished, hang with me, about a crippled man that was healed in Lystra. Let me break down the context. I don't have time to go back through all the details of it, but here's what happens. After this crippled man from birth gets healed, the people start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And the reason they're worshiping uh, them is because there was a legend in that town prior to Paul and Barnabas. And the idea was that Zeus and his son Hermes had come into flesh. They had come and become like man and entered into this city, but they were not received. In other words, no one showed them hospitality. No one was nice to them. And as a result, the majority of the people in that town died. So when they see what takes place through Paul and Barnabas, they assume that this is the return of Zeus and Hermes again, and they don't want to make the same mistake again, so this time they worship them and they fall at their feet. And here's what Paul says, verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, he says this, "'Men, why are you doing these things?' We also are men of like nature with you. Now, we're not gods. We're not no Zeus or Hermes here. We are just like you are. We're human beings just as you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to live it to, the, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, here is what Paul and Barnabas are preaching. Unlike the gods you worship, like Zeus and Hermes, who motivate you by fear, turn from them and worship the one true and living God who is a God of grace. He's given you all these things. He's your creator. He's given you rain and fruit and food and gladness and chocolate cake. And it probably didn't say chocolate cake. And sunsets and laughter. And and, and on top of all that, gave you his son. You, You don't have to be afraid of him. You can actually know him and worship him. Not us. We're just like you through faith in his son. In other words, Paul and Barnabas had a deep understanding about who God is and the goodness of God and the grace of God that you don't have to be motivated to approach him by fear. You can be motivated to approach him and worship him because of grace. And Paul and Barnabas could endure these things because they knew who God was. 
They knew his character. They had a biblical perspective on the Christian life. They had a biblical perspective on who God is. And then lastly, and I do mean lastly, they had a preoccupation with the gospel. A preoccupation with the gospel. One more thing. I think it is extremely significant. I'm going to read you several verses and see. This is a, 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 a good kind of game. I want you to see if you can notice the pattern. Notice the trend in these verses. Chapter 13, verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. When they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, as, and they had John there to assist them. Chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 14, uh, verse 7. And they continued to preach the gospel. Chapter 14, verse 15 said, uh, men, why do you do these things? We're men just like you. We bring you the good news. Uh, that is why you should turn from these vain things to the living God uh, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Chapter 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. What do you notice in every single one of those verses? They were preoccupied with something. The preaching, the sharing, the declaring of the gospel. Faith family, endurance for the gospel wanes when affection for the gospel cools. Say that again. Endurance for the gospel wanes when affection for the gospel cools. That, that is why at Faith Family, we are not music-centered. We're not music-centered. We, we sing off the screen. We're not, we're not centered on music. We're not centered on a denomination. We're not centered on a specific program. We're not centered on the pastor. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are centered on the gospel. Paul and Barnabas endured, not out of discipline, but out of delight to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Run me out of town. Wherever I go next is another opportunity to share the gospel. Their preoccupation was not with, uh, uh, you know, how, how, how their day was. Their preoccupation was with the gospel. Look at what Paul says uh, here in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may endure. Finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Don't give a rip about my life. It's not precious to me at all. What is precious to me is finishing my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord. And what is that ministry? To testify of the gospel of grace of our God. Endurance, endurance for Paul came not through discipline determination, but through gospel preoccupation. He was obsessed with the gospel. 
I close with this, one of my favorite stories. Some of you may have heard this one before, may have heard me share it before. It's about a man by the name of Cliff Young. Love this story. Cliff was a 61-year-old man who showed up one day for the longest, toughest marathon back in 1983, a marathon 500 miles from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. It was the inaugural event. Professional runners from all over the place uh, gathered there in their professional gear and you know their, uh, their uh, Nike shoes and Nike shirts, and uh, everybody looks professional. But Cliff shows up, and he's wearing overalls and boots. And everybody seriously thought Cliff was an absolute joke. When the gun sounded, the runners took off, and guess what Cliff did? He was still taking off his boots. He didn't even start running when they ran. He was right there at the starting line. And the crowd starts busting out in laughter when he finally starts running because he runs with a limp. Like a, he's got a hitch in his giddy-up. Like he, he, he doesn't run smooth. He runs slow. And they thought, what an absolute embarrassment. So imagine their surprise when Cliff not only finishes the race, he wins it. Oh, but faith family, he doesn't just win it by a few seconds or a few minutes. He won it by almost 10 hours. All of Australia was stunned. How in the world could a 61-year-old man who had never run a marathon accomplish this victory? Here's what they did not know. Cliff was not a professional runner. Cliff was a farmer. He was a farmer without the luxuries of a horse or a four-wheel drive. And he would run, not for an hour or two, he would run sometimes for two or three days, rounding up all of his cattle that were spread over 2,000 acres. So while all those professional runners, listen in, would run for 18 hours and then sleep for six, Cliff never Stopped. Listen, he ran for five days, 15 hours, and four minutes without sleeping. He had never taken a professional running class, he had never been professionally trained in running, but he had something none of the others had. Endurance. Maybe some of you this evening are awfully close to throwing in the towel. Faith family, when your race feels long and impossible to finish, when you feel like those rugby players, like you are never going to get out of your situation, Remember the greatest race that's ever been run, and it is not the one from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. It is the one from Jerusalem to Calvary. When a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter finished his race, and everybody thought he was a joke, they laughed at him, and they mocked him. They even made him carry a cross. And I assure you on that day, there was not a single person in that crowd that thought he'd get out of his situation alive. But they didn't realize 
This man was more than a carpenter. He was and is the very son of God. And the Bible says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he didn't just finish the race. My friend, he won it. And he promises to give us the grace we need to endure this mission. And God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, passages like this in Acts. It, you know, one of the things I, I love about what you've given us in the Bible is how real and uh, honest it is, how straightforward it is. You, you, you didn't give us a message that makes the, the mission look like going to an ice cream store every day. You show us real people, bloodied, drug from town to town, stoned with rocks, facing demonic activity, watching their friends leave, called every name in the book, while the very message that would give people hope was opposed. That would be enough to quit. And yet, by your grace, and for our good and salvation, you saw to it that Paul and Barnabas kept going. In the face of all of the opposition, in moments where it never looked like they'd get out alive, they endured. And Paul will say, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. For I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. So Lord, take this word tonight and encourage your people who are also in a race and also face discouragement in that race. And Lord, just remind us that the one who began the work will finish it. We love you, Lord. And God's people said, amen. amen.